The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. The scripture reading today is from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3, and Romans 1, verses 18 through 25. First from Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now from Romans 1, 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in all the things that he has made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator, creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Esther. I understand that it's your birthday today. Not to point that out or anything, but I'm pointing it out. It's Esther's birthday, everybody. Happy birthday to you. (laughs) Now we've set precedent. We have to uh, announce everybody's birthday from now on. Um, So sorry about the rain. Uh, If we could have done something about it, we would have. Kids. Okay, you may be bummed that there's no kids programming today because we were going to do everything outside. Now we've moved everything inside. But guess what? I'm going to give you an opportunity. There's going to be a competition today for kids. Illustrate my sermon. What, something that you hear in the next few minutes that I say, illustrate it. Draw a picture. And we're going to choose... Three prize winners, first, second, and third place, and we're going to announce who won next week, and we're going to give you prizes. So kids, you've got something to do in the next little bit of time. Three prize winners. So uh, as it was already announced earlier, we're beginning uh, our second Moses series. It's also a 10-part series on the law of Moses, and we're going through the Ten Commandments which is found in Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to supplement whatever the command is with a New Testament scripture that supports that command and uh, unpacks it more deeply. So today we're going to talk about idolatry, which is a very fun subject, uh, if you've never heard of it. Uh, uh, John Calvin, who was one of the main influencers behind what we know as the Protestant Reformation, Uh, said that the human heart, every human heart, is an idol factory. We are always churning idols in our hearts. Idols are another word for false gods, gods that aren't real, gods of our own making that we worship and serve. So this was an ancient problem, especially 
during the time of Israel under Moses' leadership. You shall have no gods before me. That's the command. And want to help us understand what that means. He's not saying, I am number one. I'm the number one God. He's not talking about a ranking system where you would put other gods in front of him. What it literally means is, you shall have no gods before my face because I'm not a God who accepts rivals. I am not a God who has equals. I am. I am the Lord your God. Besides me, there is no other God. Now, after spending 400 years subjugated in Egypt, the people of Israel had become culturally conditioned to think otherwise, to think as if there were multiple gods because the people of Israel every day out in public worshiped and served things like rivers and fields, the sun, storms, relics of love and war, gold, livestock. That's what influenced uh, Egypt to worship the golden calf, which we talked about uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Idolatry, as Romans uh, as the Romans text, uh, chapter 1, verse 25 says, is when we worship and serve created things instead of the Creator. Choosing creation over the Creator in terms of what we give our hearts, give our lives to. It's, it's tricky, though, because in the early chapters of Genesis, it says that God created everything very good. Everything God has made is very good. So what we're, what we're talking about here is not renouncing the good created things that God's put in front of us. But what we're talking about here is uh, this word from Romans 1, desires. The Greek word there is epithumia, which means over-desires, to take a good God-given thing and try to turn it into our ultimate thing. So this was an ancient problem, but it's also, idolatry is, a modern problem. Uh, the church father, Origen, said this. He said, what each one honors before anything else, what before all things he or she adores and loves, this, for that person, is considered God. Idols can take the form of a thing. Idols can take the form of a person. Idols can take the place of a thing, a place or a person, or an idea, a way of thinking. So, we've got four points. We've got a bonus point today. But I'm going to take them all much more quickly than usual. How idolatry starts, where we are most vulnerable to idolatry, the impact that idolatry has and how idolatry dies. So we'll start with how idolatry starts. It starts, as verse 18 says, by suppressing what is true. Turning a blind eye to voluntarily suppressing and, and sweeping under the rug that which is true and that which, as verse 19 says, can be known because God has revealed it. 
God has revealed his nature. He has revealed the truth. He has revealed the authentic state of things in two ways, through creation and through Scripture. So, creation. The 19th Psalm famously says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens speak. Creation speaks. Water, earth, sky, they all speak. They all have a voice. It's a visible voice that speaks to the heart. It says in Psalm 19 that every day creation declares knowledge. There's no place where the voice of God cannot be heard through what we see in what God has made. No place. So idolatry starts by turning a blind eye to what is obvious. God exists. And for those of us who might dare to contend that there is no evidence for God. We only need to go back to the questions, the question of origins. Where did everything come from? How likely would it be, for example, if a bomb were to detonate at Lowe's Hardware or at Home Depot or at Ace Hardware or at your local hardware store, and, and that whole store was to explode. And the result was a cul-de-sac of new houses. How likely is that going to happen from an explosion? There's a scientist named Sir Fred Hoyle. He's not a Christian. But as a scientist, he said this, organic life happening by accident is as ridiculous and impossible as the prospect that a tornado blowing through a junkyard will produce a Boeing 747. So Fred Doyle then calculated the odds of what we understand to be the Big Bang, which certainly could have happened, but could it have happened without a creator behind it? That's the question of origins. Could Genesis chapters 1 and 2 have emerged without a creator behind it? According to the scientist Sir Fred Hoyle, very famous scientist, the odds of that happening are approximately 1 in 10 to the 40,000th power. So, if you're a math person, you know that's a staggering number. The odds don't even exist. What Doyle is saying, who's not a Christian, he's saying that atheism requires a much bigger leap of faith than theism. Belief in the non-existence of God, belief in the non-existence of a creator requires a much larger leap of faith a much less rational leap of faith than believing that the heavens declare the glory of a creator. But then, for those of us who still don't buy in, God has also given us Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says that just like creation, all Scripture or the written Word of God is God-breathed 
and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man, woman, or child of God may be thoroughly equipped for every, every good work. And so in the idolatry question, if creation has been given to us by God, if we can understand at base level the difference between right and wrong, the difference between good and evil, the difference between justice and injustice, the difference between beauty and ugliness, the, the, the difference between truth and lies, then it stands to reason that we would always be seeking to put ourselves beneath the wisdom of our Creator, not above the wisdom of our Creator. You know, Disney's, uh, Walt Disney's famous uh, you know, character, Jiminy Cricket, said, let your conscience be your guide. If you want to make right decisions and good decisions and head down a life-giving path, Jiminy Cricket says, let your conscience be your guide. Well, that could be true or it could be a very dangerous piece of advice depending on what is shaping your, your conscience. Are, are your own thoughts and impulses or is your, your surrounding and prevailing culture shaping your conscience or is what has been revealed through creation and Scripture shaping and forming your conscience? So there's the written word, but then God has finally revealed Himself in what the Bible calls, or who the Bible calls, the Word made flesh, Jesus who made His dwelling among us. You know, one pastor said that, you know, here's, here, here's, he essentially said this is the reason why he thinks everybody should believe in Jesus. If a guy can predict his own death, burial, and resurrection, and then pull it off, shouldn't it stand to reason that we should embrace and organize our lives around everything that he said. So the way that idolatry starts is to deny all this, to suppress it, to turn a blind eye to it, to pretend it doesn't exist, to go la 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 to the things that we know are true. As verse 25 says, idolatry is when we take the truth and we exchange it for lies. It, it, it's, it's an act of intellectual suicide. It starts in the thinking, right? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with everything that you are. But he especially at the end said, love the Lord your God with all your mind. Romans chapter 12 says you've got to be transformed. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world that doesn't account for God, but, but, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Fill it with what creation tells you, with what Scripture tells you, with what the Word made flesh, Jesus tells you and shows you. Otherwise, as verse 21 says, you become futile in your thinking. And, and, and you fall into the error, the self-destructive error of the whole book of Judges where it says that in those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the worst thing that could ever happen to a society. Expressive individualism where each person decides what truth is for them. So then what you get is an entire society of colliding and warring truths that aren't true. It's chaos. It's mayhem when everyone just gets to do what's right in their own eyes, to, to, to claim authority, to claim authority over their own lives, to claim the author, authorship of their own stories, 
to claim authorship of what's good and right and true and beautiful without respect to the Creator. So that's how idolatry starts, taking truth and exchanging it for a lie. So where are we the most vulnerable to idolatry? It's a, I think it's actually a very simple answer. And, and if, if, if you can't find the answers yourself to these questions, just find the person who knows you best and ask them all of these honest questions. Help me evaluate this. Look at the hierarchy of your own loves. Discern honestly as best you can what comes first in your heart, not only in what you say comes first, but, but, but functionally, how you live your life, where, how you organize your decision-making, the basis for which you think, say, and do things, what drives you the most. There are endless possibilities. For some, idolatry takes the obvious blatant form of an addiction to a substance like alcohol or, or drugs or sex or certain images that you can't stop looking at on a computer. Idolatry can also take the form of financial security or purchasing power or lifestyle. Must have these things in order to be a happy person. Or a certain kind of career or a reputation Idolatry can uh, have to do with being in the inner ring of certain social circles, being able to name drop and such. Idolatry could be your health. Idolatry could uh, be a political philosophy. Here are some diagnostic questions to ask ourselves. These, there's first the emotional question. What do I think that I need? Not what do I prefer, not what do I want, but what do I think that I need in order to be happy? If you put anything in that place other than Jesus Christ, there's your idol. What makes me panic if it seems threatened or if I'm about to lose it or if I have lost it? What makes me panic? Same thing. There's also the mental question. What preoccupies my thoughts the most? when things are quiet, when I'm laying down in bed at night before I fall asleep, or, or, or what pops into my head first thing in the morning on a regular basis. That will give great insight, the mental question. Then there's the stewardship question. Where do I invest money and time, money and time, with the greatest amount of ease? Then there's the character question. This is a dead giveaway. Where am I willing to contradict Scripture? Where are there patterns in my life where I regularly contradict Scripture for fear of what I would lose if I obeyed Scripture? And a second question is like it. Where am I willing to hurt people if I must in order to get it, to keep it, to protect it? Contradict Scripture, hurt people. Where are those patterns? Okay, so those are some diagnostic questions we can ask about, you know, to get to the answer of where we're most vulnerable to idolatry. Okay, so point number three, the impact that idolatry has. The impact of idolatry, either in the short-term future or in the long-term, is always, without exception, it's always going to be chaos 
It's always going to be misery. It's always going to be a, a, a vandalism of yourself. Classic picture of this in, in one of Jesus' parables is in Luke chapter 15 where he tells you know, what, what many call the parable of the prodigal son. Now, there, there's, there's a lot going on in this parable. There are actually two sons, you know, both after the same thing, but both have different strategies to get it. Both of them have a great disrespect for their father and for his care. Both are much more interested in, in what God or, or what their father uh, can give them than they are in their father. But with respect to the prodigal, the runaway, he runs away and he asks his father for the inheritance as he goes because he has an alternate vision for what the good life is. And it's a vision that's different than the, than the vision that his father has raised him in. The father's vision for the good life ultimately traces back to home. Everyone needs a home that's filled with love, that's characterized by sharing, and that's filled with feasting. Everybody needs that, whether it's a nuclear family or whether it's a, a church family. Meaningful, life-giving community. That's the father's vision for the good life. But the prodigal's vision is the opposite of this. The prodigal's vision is one of independence from that kind of home filled with love, sharing, and feasting. The prodigal's vision is what you could call hedonism. Doing what is right in his own eyes. Letting his malformed conscience, if you will, letting his malformed, twisted emotions be his guide, and he ends up with orgies and substance abuse, and eventually poverty, and eventually misery, and no friends, and complete isolation. It's a really vivid picture of what hell will ultimately look like. But his first mistake, this prodigal son, is that he assumes authorship of his own life. He assumes authority over his own life, which is described in, in Romans 121 as a refusal to honor and a refusal to give thanks to the Father, your source. The truth of God is that we are not our own. We don't belong to ourselves that we have been bought with a price. But the prodigal spirit in us goes something like the Billy Joel song. I don't need you to worry for me because I'm all right. I don't want you to tell me it's time to come home. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. The more we presume, like the prodigal, to self-define, to self-govern, to self-make, to self-center our lives, the more we presume to do that, the more we will bring the wrath of God on ourselves. 
The wrath of God is not something that God puts on us. It is something that we ask for. It is something that we demand by exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Because if you want a succinct definition of the wrath of God, it's when God gives you what you want for you that's not what He wants for you. The wrath of God is when God becomes wearied of never hearing from you, thy will be done. And then he turns back to you and says, okay, thy will be done. Worst thing that could ever happen to you, the most tragic thing that could ever happen to you is for God to give you what you want. in such a way that it's not what He wants for you. The wrath of God is self-inflicted. The prodigal son says to the father, give me my inheritance. That's code for, I wish you were dead. I just wish that, that, that you were dead and the will could be executed now. I could get my money, I could get my stuff, live my life on my terms. And the father who loves his son so deeply says, okay, you want wrath, you've got it. Here's all the money, here's all the stuff. Go go live your life on your own terms. We'll see how it works out for you. You disregard gravity, you're gonna break some bones. You disregard God, you're gonna break your life. It's the fabric of the universe. As as Nate Tasker quoted from Eugene Peterson, the law of God is the grain of the universe. If you go against the grain of the universe, you're going to get splinters. It's a compassionate thing, these built-in consequences of misery. When we go against the grain of the universe, we're created in God's image, The Ten Commandments are a succinct summation of the character of God, which means they are also a succinct summation of the design of a flourishing human being, of what abundant life is. And you take a fish out of water, what happens to the fish? The fish becomes anxious, the fish becomes restless, the fish loses oxygen and the the fish eventually wilts away, and if not returned to the water, if not returned to the habitat for which it was made, it will die. The same is true with the law of God. The prodigal's misery is simply the laws of nature running their course. The wrath of God has nothing to do with any sort of hate-filled retaliation that God wants to somehow impose on people, the wrath of God from God's perspective is passive sorrow. It is passive in that it says, okay, you want it, you got it. And and it says that he hands us over to what we ask for. But it's also filled with sorrow. It's God letting go, finally, 
and saying, okay, your will be done then. And then it is God grieving with a grief that, that, that we can't even begin to understand or comprehend. The Bible says that, that, that God takes no pleasure, zero pleasure, in the judgment or the death even of wicked people. No pleasure in it at all. You know, the image of Jesus always comes to mind, at least for me, around any conversation about the wrath of God where he's looking over Jerusalem, who has ultimately rejected the grace and truth of God. Who, who, Jerusalem was living in the far country, even though they were still at home. And, and, and Jesus looks down on Jerusalem and he weeps. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, whenever there's repetition of a word or a name, it, it's a term of endearment. In the same way that Jesus says, Martha, Martha, or, or, or that King David said of his son, Absalom, Absalom, it's a term of endearment. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who has rejected me? How I have longed to gather you under my wings. As a mother hen gathers her chicks, there's a deep maternal tenderness in the heart of Christ toward those who are choosing their own path of destruction. That's the impact that idolatry has. It's the wrath that we bring upon ourselves. But finally, how idolatry dies. This is when we exchange the lies of our heart for the truth of God. It's when we exchange futile thinking for healthy, life-giving thinking. Philippians 4, chapter, 4 verse 8 puts it this way, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think about such things. Think, become not futile, but, 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 but sane and sober in your thinking. Think about such things. Or, or 2 Corinthians 10 puts it this way, we destroy we destroy. There's a, there's a war to be rage, waged here in our minds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion, hold on to that word, opinion, raised against the knowledge, opinion versus knowledge, our feelings versus God's truth, opinion versus knowledge. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. If you're a Christian, this is the fight of your life. If you're not a Christian and you're considering Christianity, this is what you're signing up for. It's part of what you're signing up for. Is the recognition and renunciation of all of your opinions that stand in contradiction to the truth of God, as revealed in creation, as revealed in the Word of God, written, as revealed in the Word who became flesh and made His dwelling among us, Jesus Christ. When I was in graduate school, I was paralyzed with worry. I'm a worrying kind of guy. Imagine what the pandemic is going to do and how the pandemic is going to mess with a pastor us to preach to an empty sanctuary. Worry is one of my Achilles heels. What if scenarios running through my mind? These are the, these are the strongholds and arguments and opinions that I have to confront and destroy with the knowledge of God for the obedience of Christ. What is my opinion? My opinion is that I have a better opinion about 
what the future should look like than God does. My opinion is that my opinions of what the good life will be is better than the truths that God has said about what the good life is. So when I was in graduate school or seminary, my what-if scenario was, because I was having some health trouble, I was having some symptoms that, that for whatever reason the doctors couldn't diagnose, and some of them pointed to some potential diseases that were fatal. And so I'm afraid for my health, I'm afraid that I won't have longevity, I'm afraid, at the time I was single, I was afraid I would never get married, I would never have children. I was afraid of not getting the good life that I'd always dreamed of getting. I was afraid that I would never get to pastor a church, afraid of dying young. And so one of my father figures, I have like two or three father figures that have stepped into my life to speak into my life. One of them is named Jerem Bars. It's lovely. If you did the four groups over the summers, it was, he wrote the book that, that your four group did the, your studies and discussions around. One of the most tender, pastoral, truth-telling people I've ever known. And what he kept saying to my hypochondria and fears about the future was this. Scott, he said in his tender British accent, talk to yourself more than you listen to yourself. Talk to yourself more than you listen to yourself. What he's encouraging is active meditation. To empty my mind, but not to leave it there. That's what Eastern religion says. Empty your mind and, and keep it empty. But you empty it of the things that are not true and lovely and beautiful and excellent and praiseworthy. Vis-a-vis, -vis, your view of the future is better than God's view of the future. And then fill it with the truth of God. The truth of God says this. You know, first, my untruth is that if I get sick and if I die young, then I'm doomed and my life hasn't been worth living. That was my untruth, but God's truth was Philippians, to live as Christ and to die as gain. To live as Christ, the one who died at somewhere around 33. And to die as gain. To die is to be with Christ. My idol was controlling the future. My idol was authorship of my own story in which I wanted created wants to become salvific needs. Salvific is a theolo fancy theological word for salvation. Certain wants were, were wants that I thought would save me. Having a, having a wife, having children, being able to have a long, flourishing, you know, many years and decades of ministry. I was looking to those things to save me, to give me significance, to give me happiness and a peace that can only come from Christ. You know, what was true for Moses is also true for us. There's only one thing that we cannot lose, and, and that one thing that we cannot lose also happens to be the one and only thing that we actually need, and that's Christ himself. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of bondage, out of Egypt, away from the gold, golden calves, away from your futile thinking, but I didn't just bring you out of bondage. I did so in order to bring you in to a life of abundance, to bring you in to a land flowing with milk and honey, but, 
you got to recognize the milk and honey isn't the ultimate destination. I'm the ultimate destination. I am your food and drink. I am your habitat. I am your flourishing. No idol is ever going to die for you. And every idol will ultimately and eventually demand that you die for it. No idol will forgive you when you fail it. Every idol will punish you when you fail it, to worship and serve it. No idol will enlarge your life. Every idol will reduce your life. In comes Jesus. He reverses all of this. He does the opposite of what every idol does. He will die for you. In fact, he has died for you so that you would never die. He will forgive, and he does and has forgiven you even when you fail him. He will enlarge you and not reduce you. So next week, we're, we're going to talk about how Jesus was and is the image of this God. Jesus is the image of God who gives back everything that our idols have taken from us. Like the father in the parable, he waits, looking, waiting for our misery to drive us back home so that he can surprise us with welcome that says to us, I will never take you back on the terms of a slave. I will only take you back on the terms of a beloved son and a beloved daughter. Therefore, for the love of God and for your own sake, you shall have no other gods before me. Thus saith the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us Jesus, the elder brother who never resented us for the prodigals that we are, but who gladly shares his own inheritance with us, in fact, gives all of it up dying for us so that we can live, forgiving us so that we would never be punished for our own foolishness, enlarging us so that we would never be reduced by our own willingness and foolishness to exchange the truth of God for a lie. Father, help us to treasure you above all things. Help us to believe that your vision for the good life is so superior, so much more life-giving, so much better than whatever small little vision we might want to conjure up for ourselves. And now, Lord, as we approach the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, and then lots of fun together afterwards with the party, may this be an image for us. May this be a, a micro experience for us of the welcome that awaits us when we, your prodigals, are, are welcomed home. Lord, we give you thanks for the body which is represented in your blood, in the bread. We thank you for your blood, which is represented in the cup and given to us in the cup. Father, may these physical elements nourish us physically, but even more may the truth that comes to us in the body and the blood of Christ, crucified for us, buried, risen, ascended to heaven, coming again. Give us the strength and the nourishment that we crave and that we foolishly look for in so many other things. Recenter us on yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.